Welcome to Tad Dickel's Leadership and Strategy Podcast, bringing you authentic conversations with leaders about their approach to leadership and their organization's strategy for success. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Strategy Podcast. This is your host, Tad Dickel, and I'm here today with Dr. Jim Schrader, who is a child psychologist and vice president of psychology at uh, Easter Seals in Evansville, Indiana. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Yeah, good morning. Great to be here. Jim, would you mind uh, just starting out by telling our listeners about uh, yourself? I am most importantly a uh, husband of my wife, Amy, and father of eight children. And uh, born in actually Indianapolis, raised in Evansville, Indiana, and went to Ball State for undergrad. So shout out to David Letterman, those other graduates out there from Ball State. And then my wife and I got married in 2000, and about three weeks later, moved over to St. Louis, where I started grad school at St. Louis University. And so was there for about four years. And as psychology works, I was placed in an internship at Cozier Children's Hospital in Louisville. So we spent there a year in Louisville and then went back to St. Louis to do my fellowship at Washington University and uh, Wash U School of Med, where at that time it was, I guess, the end of the fellowship that our twins were born. So it's kind of amazing to think about this. It's been over 17 years since they were born in St. Louis. And after my fellowship, I started my first position at Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis. And we had our our third child, Matthew, was born. And things started to get a little tight at home. So we decided, okay, we're either probably moving to a different home or we're going to look at opportunities maybe to come back to Evansville. And so that's what happened. And back then it was St. Mary's. Of course, it's now St. Vincent Center for Children. But I joined there in 2008 as a child psychologist and spent um, a decade there before I moved over into my current role as the vice president of the Department of Psychology and Wellness here, and before we started our training program, which we may talk more about um, in psychology. So it's been, it's been a good road. Great. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for the background. I'm sure most of our listeners probably immediately say, eight children. <laughs> what, what would that be like? Yeah, you know what? You can go all over the place with this one. And I'll tell you one thing. It, when you're a child psychologist and you have eight children, it immediately presses upon you that you better be able to uh, figure out how the, the training that you've you know, had at this point and, and what you're teaching can apply itself at home. I think that's the funny thing is, you know, you walk into a supermarket and for those who might know me or my wife, and if your child's imploding in the supermarket, there are those who are kind of curious, like, how's this child psychologist going to handle this situation? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, th- I think, you know, there's definitely, you have to have some humor about it. But in all seriousness, one of the great things about having a large family is it really does press upon me to think, okay, so, you know, what really is important in the practice of psychology as it applies to everyday life, right? It's one thing to have all of what we do here at work, you know, both in working with our own families here and our training, but it's a whole other thing to walk into your house and realize that, wow, this is pretty applicable and uh, at times pretty humble in your everyday life. So yeah, it's, it's a wild road at times. Sure. I'm sure it's never a dull moment. Never, never. And then if it is, we enjoy it too. Right. So yes, <laughs> for sure. Now you went from being a practicing psychologist and you still are, mm-hmm. you know, practice and, right. and see uh, clients. 
But you also now have moved into a leadership role, you know, over the last several years with Easter Seals. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that transition and maybe your approach to leadership during that time and talk about how you lead now a department rather than just lead, really just manage your own time. Right. It's a great question. And and I'll tell you one thing, leadership is an exciting area. I'm sure as you talked with many others about, it's also a humbling area because many times, you know, when you go forward to do things, you realize you can put a lot of effort into areas, but it's not guaranteed to necessarily, you know, have a positive payout that way. But I think one of the approaches that right away that comes through when I made this transition is I recognize that, you know, we are only as good as the people in this department are flourishing. If you sat in on a lot of our meetings and and kind of what we talk about, we recognize that we can kind of only give what we've got, right? So how how we are as psychologists here or how we are as, you know, pre-doctoral intern who's finishing up their training has so much to do with, again, how much we feel like personally we are flourishing. And so one of the areas of focus for sure for me in leadership, and I've been really blessed with some great leaders that have helped me along the way, is a sense of kind of trying to come to each person that's here no matter what the role is, and get a sense of, one, what drives them, you know, like what really motivates them in this field. Because it, let's be honest, this is a tough field right now. There's a lot of opportunity, but a ton of need. And so is to really kind of approach each person and get the sense of what drives them, what moves them, what really, you know, kind of makes them want to be in this area. But also the things that maybe we need to do to make sure that that we're flourishing as much as possible. We're all going to have struggles. We're all going to have challenges with our our roles, not just professionally, but personally. But I think that one of the things I have recognized is so important is that people here and anywhere recognize that your value, that your approach is you need, you know, you want them to flourish so that others, things you do can flourish. And it can't really work the other way around. It's like I can say to someone, oh, we need to have all of this done But if we don't find a way for that to match with their interests and the things that are important to them, then growth is difficult, right? Sustaining things is difficult. So we can talk about kind of any area, but I think one of the approaches to leadership that we have really tried to collectively as a culture here focus on is a sense of we need to promote that, you know, again, use that word flourishing, but that idea of, you know, kind of expanding our capacity and growing each person's capacity in a certain way. Right. And one of the most important roles, I think, for a leader is to make the team successful. And so I I think the way, the reason leadership is so difficult is because it's so individual and it's so custom in terms of each individual's interests, their abilities, their their passions, their, you know, like what you talked about, what drives them. And so it's almost like you have to know the people around you so well that you you can figure out what approach they need from you to to help motivate them and be the most you know the best version of themselves. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think you think about where does energy come from, right? For all of us each day, where does you know your energy come from to do the things that you need to do? And you can say part of it is just that we sometimes have to kind of just quote unquote suck it up and do things that are difficult. But the reality is it's amazing how much energy will show up within an individual or a department when people feel really engaged in certain goals that align with who they are, right? I mean, I've seen this over and over in, in such a positive way, like with our students, whether it's through undergrad students all the way up to fellowship students, 
that when they feel that, you know, you're really engaging with their, like who they are and then their interests, that if it can align, and many times it does with a particular area of growth or administrative task or whatever, I'm, I'm really always, I'm struck in a positive way, like, wow, I'm amazed how much energy they're willing to put into that. And, um, and do it well because, again, it connects with that person, right? And I think that that is such a big key is that we kind of wonder, each of us sometimes feels, oh, you might feel drained or tired, but you suddenly, when you're engaged and it sparks kind of an emotional connection, you find energy that you might not even exist, think existed there. And so that's a big key for sure. Sure. And there's, a, there's an aspect of engagement and Gallup has done a lot of research on engagement. And one question that you can ask people uh, whether they're engaged is like, at work, do I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day? And if we find ourselves in roles or if people around us find themselves in roles that they're not able to be their best self, right? then, you know, they will over time, I think, have really probably deteriorating results just because they they don't find the energy in in that work. That's right. Yeah. I mean, all of us have to do certain tasks that don't maximize our enjoyment or skills. And we understand that. And and we're all willing to put up with a certain percentage of that because we know that comes with some of the work that we do. But, But to your point, if what we're, if the area of growth or if the tasks that we're putting out there don't line up with this person's, you know, own, we call it schema, like their self schema, who they are, then you just find that either over time, their ability to, I think, produce and be productive and innovative diminishes. And either, even if they stay with an organization, they might stay in a context that isn't ideal. But to be honest, I think that's sometimes why people end up leaving departments and organizations, because they felt like they they have a great skill set in an area that they really love and it's not being utilized. We're constantly trying to figure out how do we utilize you know, an area. We you know I can think of recently we have a faculty member who really has got a great skill set in working with younger kids and, and behavioral issues that are going on and she really enjoys that area and we've recently has gotten a certification kind of do some work there. And I've just been really so amazed and appreciative of her willingness to take on kind of a new area of growth that seems to really align with what she likes to do. And so that's something that we really maximize. Yeah, it's a perfect match. It is. It is for sure. Now, I know, especially coming off the pandemic, there's a mental health crisis in our country that schools, providers, employers are all grappling with and trying Mm -hmm. to figure out how to move forward. What is the waiting list like currently now for a lot of psychologists in your practice or elsewhere? Right. Well, yeah, to your point, the pandemic, it's almost like the pandemic illuminated something that was there and only really showed it to us in full, not splendor, of course, right? But the waiting list, you know, it depends on who you're trying to get into. I mean, you may have a few months waiting list for more adult providers in this town. Unfortunately, I sit here saying that our waiting list, and there's a few others that are similar to us, is anywhere from 16 to 18 months right now. Um, And that's a reflection of a few things. One is just the true kind of pediatric mental health crisis that we have. Two, it's a reflection, unfortunately, of this area that we have many less psychologists than we really should based on our population size. Um, and that's part of the reason why we've kind of expanded our department and really taken on training in a lot of ways, because we're able to now bring in people from out of town who would never even consider Evansville or never even knew Evansville existed, to be honest, um, and now come here potentially and train for a year 
And some of which actually we had two recently just came back in this area. Um, consider being here long term. Right. So, yeah. So one of your responsibilities is is also you helped establish a residency program here, and then I think you've also had some involvement. Now there's a a new uh, PsyD or Doctor of Psychology degree at University of Evansville. Yeah, can, that's right. can you talk about some of those efforts to help build up uh, the mental health? provider capacity here? Yeah. So when I came over um, a little over five years ago and, and worked with our CEO, Kelly Schneider, what we recognized that it had been about about two decades since there had been a psychology pre-doctoral internship in town. Why that's important is that in the world of psychology, once you've gone through undergrad and graduate school, then you have to have a pre-doctoral internship somewhere in the country um, to allow yourself to eventually get licensed beyond that. And so Without Evansville having that, uh, we were just, again, kind of limited in who we were bringing in from the outside or limited in bringing providers back. So we established, as part of a, a fuller training program, a pre-doctoral internship and spent a couple of years getting accredited through a lot of the challenges that come with that. This is year five. We just welcomed our fifth class of students in for the pre-doctoral internship. And that's been really, really a great thing for us and for the area, just to have those come in from the outside and invest in that training the other piece that you mentioned is, and this is really exciting for us too, is that University of Evansville is about a week away from welcoming their first class of students for their doctoral level um, program in psychology. It's actually the first program of its kind in the Evansville area ever. So when, once students graduate from undergrad, and if they're going into psychology to be a psychologist, they're looking for a doctorate program. And so UE is welcoming in, I think, 15 students into their doctorate program. And so we've been kind of on the front lines and collaborating with UE around that and are really excited. Um, We will be a training site for those doctorate students, but um, it's been neat to be kind of on the ground floor helping with um, all the logistics of that. So that's a big deal. Yeah, that's exciting. What what have you done then? Because I I think mental health, there's still... It's not like it used to be in terms of the stigma attached to it. Right. But what have you done to really help promote this need in our community? Because I I know that probably in order to make this happen, there's been a necessary investment of like private dollars, of maybe public dollars. And just kind of curious how that process has worked in terms of raising awareness. And, And I think this is helpful advice for other organizations who are trying to raise awareness of certain issues and um, bring that to the forefront to to uh, garner the support that they need. Yeah, one of the first things that we did, and this the mayor's task force was heavily involved with this, is to engage other agencies in town. And you know, one thing, make sure that everyone is aware of what everyone's doing. I think part of leadership sometimes isn't even what you're just doing in your own organization, but is to make sure that your organization is aware of the efforts and collaborating in that way. So right off the bat, I mean, we really worked kind of be part of that that task force and um, other groups in town and even Mental Health America, which was previously an independent organization. And Emily Reedford has been a director of that for years, came under kind of our auspices a few years ago. And so um, the collaboration initially has been a big key in, in trying to engage and raise even a greater consciousness. But on the second level, we realized that more recently, and this was going to come out during COVID, but things obviously COVID derailed a lot of things, is that we recognize that we really need to create an endowment for our organization to not only grow this program, but to sustain it long-term. I think that's one of the, not surprisingly, one of the biggest challenges of 
any organization or leadership is to have the finances to sustain a vision for the long haul. And so over the last basically year and a half, we've kind of been going through our silent phase of accumulating. Our initial goal is $5 million, and we're about 75% of that initial goal. Though, And honestly, that's a low-end goal. We really are hoping to, to kind of garner more like seven-plus million but we've been doing kind of a silent phase of just getting our donors engaged, whether private donors or organizations. And then interestingly, kind of good timing with this interview, but last Friday, we announced the public phase of that. And so public is now aware of this the campaign to provide this endowment. And so we're looking to hopefully get good support from the public um, around the area of mental health there. So great. Well, yeah, that's, that's exciting. I'm yeah, I'm sure uh, good things are to come from that. Yeah, we're really looking forward. And I think, you know, even beyond just the financial side, being able to engage people, and you, you mentioned a key earlier, is that while there still is some stigma associated with mental health, it's been really neat to see how many ways that stigma has decreased, I think, even the last five years. You know, I've had meetings with donors or potential donors who have acknowledged um, serious areas of just difficulty, you know, within psychology, within their own family. And I think it just kind of allows us to see, hey, life is hard. Like, you know what? It's just sometimes tough. And we all, we're all touched by this area of mental health. And the more that we're honest about it and just open about it, the less the stigma is a real deterrent. Right. What would you say are like some of the proactive things that you do? I know you've written Mm -hmm. a lot about um, self-care and Mm -hmm. healthy body, mind, spirit. Tell me a little bit more about your own practices. As you mentioned, I've, I've written about a lot of articles, and um, most of which are archived on james-schrader.com for those who are interested. A number of my books really take on that idea of kind of a, a sense of holistic pursuit and a sense of like looking at, you know, we we have this misnomer sometimes of compartmentalizing something like mental health, and we think, oh, well, if I can just get therapy and medication, right, it's going to deal with my anxiety. But the problem is if your sleep and your activity level and maybe what you're eating and other areas um, isn't quite as healthy as you would like it to be or where it should be. We know that the human body is and mind is all interconnected. And so the science behind areas like that, like sleep, for example, or nutrition and how it's linked to mental health is there. I mean, it's really, really good science. But part of what I've done is to try to like find different ways to bring that out. Um, even in my own podcast prior, Living a Whole Christian Life that I did and is, you know, you can link through the website or any major outlet is to say, hey, this whole mind, this whole body, everything affects everything in some ways. The other things that we've done through Easter Seals, we have, like, for example, a series linked to our internship website on teaching the best science of empathy for parents. So it's a 10-part interactive series I did with our fellow last year to kind of say, even if you never come in here as a client or as a parent, you know, I really hope you check out this way, you know, how do we teach empathy, which is such a core skill, and not only good for other people, but actually really, really good for our own mental health. And so how do we go about teaching that in a way that's available to to anyone there? And so I think if anything, my approach has been just that it goes back to this idea, if we all engage around trying to live kind of a life that is pursuing flourishing and whatever roles that we have, kind of back to our beginning of our conversation, and we engage each other about options available out there for it, then the more there's solidarity and the more that people like connect those together, the more I think that you have opportunities for not only your own support, but your own growth too. So Right, right. And I know that part of what you've done is like personally – 
physical fitness has been a really important part. And I, for me personally, I feel like those times where I'm sleeping well, I'm eating well, I'm active, like right. that really affects my mental health. I mean, it, it's a, it directly contributes to that. And sometimes I, f- I even find like when I'm struggling with something personally, like taking a moment to exercise or do things like that, that kind of remove that from my mind, that that really helps my overall well-being. I think so. I, we as human beings often look at things in a very linear way. Like if I want to be a better leader, what are the skills I need to have, right? Or what are the things I need to do? But the reality is that just as a parent or any kind of leader, you really do only have what you can give, right? You only you have to have it from somewhere. And to your point, I sometimes think the best thing I've done as a parent <laughs> might be go, go out for a run because I just need to settle myself I need to kind of like have a reflective sense about what's going on. I need to feel more engaged and more attentive. And then I can come back to those tasks, to those demands better, right? Um, but it's easy sometimes to just think, how do I build it in what looks like in front of me in the linear way? But you can't build what you don't have in the first place. And so very often it's been the approach to say, and I'll, I'll tell this story, I guess this is a good story to relate this, that, that like the capacity you have, there's nothing more important than that when it comes to taking on specific roles. And so the story I'm alluding to is that when my wife and I had our first kids and it was, it was a pretty big shock when you have twins, you've never had kids before. And then you, you know, that moment I still remember of over 17 years ago, sitting in the, the, the room, the, you know, and having gotten the ultrasound and realizing, Oh wow, like she's going to have two, you know, and Amy felt the same, like, <laughs> Oh wow, we're we're we knew she was probably pregnant, but we've never had twins in our family, right? You know, after our twins were born, Amy and I both described this shift where we thought we used to think like the most important thing about parenting was the tasks that you had to do. Like that was the most important thing. And to be a good parent, you had to take on all those tasks. But I think having two right off the bat engendered in us that the most important thing in parenting or any leadership role is actually growing your capacity in a whole way so that you can take on the tasks. Mm. And while that might sound like semantics, it's really not intended to be like we, if you're, there's so many times that we've all felt in our life where we have good intentions, but maybe it was a lack of energy or maybe it was a lack of emotional regulation that didn't allow those intentions to come to fruition. And that for that, you know, early in those years with having twins and then eventually having, we had six kids in seven and a half years you know, really said like our capacity as people and parents has to be the first priority so that whatever tasks come our way, then we can take those on. And I think that overlays with the leadership a lot. Like every day, you know, as a leader here and in the other places, you know, I'm pressed with lots of different things. And if I don't have the capacity to take those on, even with good intent, my leadership is diminished, I would argue. Right. I like that uh, description though, because I think of many leaders I've worked with who whose intentions don't align with their behavior. Right. And so there are times where, you know, I I I really believe the best in, in most people, mm-hmm. and I feel like most people really want to do a good job, and they, like, people in leadership roles want to be good leaders, but they're their behaviors are not consistent with the intention that they have to be a good leader. And, and some of it comes from perception 
uh, and understanding, having a better understanding of how they're perceived. Right. And so we can we can learn how we're perceived by other people, but also I think just having the capacity to lead in the way that we want to lead. And and a lot of that comes down to, like you talked about, emotional regulation, coming down to being able to truly bring their best self to work every day and to be be rested and energized and enthusiastic about the work at hand of leading. Totally agree. So there's an article I wrote years ago called The Three E's of Parenting. And then I realized, no, it's really the three E's of life, but we could also call it the three E's of leadership if we want. Mm. And the article focused on the three E's being empathy, emotional regulation, and endurance, right? Or energy, whatever way you want to go with it. But what you find in the research is that those three areas are such huge drivers of either positive outcomes or let's say in the case of where you struggle with emotional, you know, it's emotional dysregulation or or reduced empathy or negative outcomes, right? So what I would argue is that as a good leader, if we can grow, find ways to grow our capacity, again, with, with solidarity with others too, if I'm growing in my endurance, right? That's not just physical endurance, it's psychological, social, right? If I'm growing in my emotional regulation, I'm real, but I'm, I'm able to regulate appropriately. And if I'm growing in my empathy, then I would argue that the most effective leaders out there really have grown those capacity in each of those areas. And not just alone, but each of those areas interact with the other. And then that's what allows them to be most effective, right? Um, you know, ask yourself, Abraham Lincoln once said this great quote, that a hero is someone who embodies the qualities that we either desire or admire in ourselves, right? And I love that quote because I think about that, yeah, like, you know, those people I look up to, they've got something that I want. Or maybe I'm starting to see in myself and I'm glad about it, right? But those qualities are, are universal kinds of qualities. And that those three E's of endurance, empathy, and emotional regulation are as in, you know, universal as they get. Yeah, I, th- I think that definitely uh, applies to re- leadership. I think it applies to our, our success in relationships, our success in, in whatever role we're in, whether it's in our uh, family, in a church congregation, in, yeah. a, in a workplace. Everything, really. Isn't it amazing? And, and it's interesting, too, that if my, like, let's take the emotional regulation piece, if I am better able to manage my emotional state, right? And, and again, I'm not saying be authentic with your emotional state. It's not denying it, but manage it in a way that's effective. Not only is it good for that area, but it's it's really interesting how that provides for more energy. So one of the things that we do with our trainees here, when they step into kind of their, it's the first year where they start to put all their clinical experiences together and kind of see how that professional life could be. And I've had a lot of great conversations over the years with, you know, our, our interns or fellows who sometimes come in and initially when things don't go well with maybe a certain client, they're really emotionally upset, right? They're really those, that's a difficult situation. And we understand that. But one of the pieces that over time they start to get better and better at is that they manage that emotional state in a way that's more effective. And it also doesn't drain the energy they feel that they need for other tasks. Sure. Right. And think about this as, I mean, we know this is a leader that, and every day you don't really know what's going to come to you. And if the things that come to you immediately cause you a lot of dysregulation and you're upset and all of this, and you, you find yourself kind of railing you know, over and over. I mean, that's, that's energy draining. And I'll be honest, it takes away the empathy that you might have for other people. 
because you're so kind of caught up in your own emotional state there. So There's a really good TED Talk by Amy Cuddy about, it's about body language and also talks about hormone levels. Mm, so interesting. They, it, it's interesting because she describes effective leaders as having high testosterone levels, which are which would be considered like the dominance hormone, and dominance sometimes has a bad, right, bad uh, rap there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but but most leaders have some have higher testosterone levels because they're they're viewed as as leaders. They're viewed as having the ability to lead, and then low cortisol levels, which is mm-hmm. stress reactive, and and so they t- she talks about how we want leaders who are able to lead or dominant, you know, in, in dominant in a good way, not in a, right. in a negative uh, way, but, and then have, then are not stress reactive. And what happens is, you know, as we learn to regulate our emotions, we can really control like that cortisol level. I mean, it's a physical response when, uh, when when we become anxious or when we allow stress to take over. Right, I agree. And to think about, it, you know, the more that cortisol level spikes, right? And the other key is that it should spike at situations where we really need to be alert and acute, you know, that what's going on. But what happens sometimes is that when it spikes for people, it doesn't come back down to a good baseline. And that's what we talk about in the world of psychology, kind of like chronic inflammatory state. When you're there and everything, you know, is kind of a spike and the spike doesn't come back down, that's when you start to feel like, wow, I'm just exhausted, you know, like I'm spent and it's it's not even halfway through my day and I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. And, you know, again, we're all going to feel that sometimes, but I think that for leadership, it really demands that you're still available, sometimes even later in the day, sometimes when things are going on. And, and you're not only needing to be available, but you need to have the ability to think about what's going on and what needs to happen. You know, before this interview started, we were talking, you know, us here about the idea of being a leader here, but then coming home with your family, right? Mm-hmm. And being a leader at home and how hard sometimes that is because, you know, you're asked to kind of do a lot of different things and it involves a lot of social, emotional energy or whatever kind. And then, and then your kids who love you and they want to see you, they've got 10,000 things they need and they want from you, right? And it's not like they're trying to be inconsiderate that your day's been tough, but let's be honest, they've got their needs. And so that's where nobody has ever said to me or anybody like, I don't want to have more energy, right? You know, it's usually the common is often when you see little kids and they seem endless in their energy. We've all said before, like, if I could just harness that, right, and bottle it. But the reality is, I think that we, back to that Abraham Lincoln idea, it's like, we admire those who are able to find ways to continue to have the energy and wherewithal to take on things that others might think are just exhausting. Sure. And your point about the cortisol and your point about the physiological factors is a really key one because mm-hmm. um, the better we're able to find ways to manage that, the better we're able to have the qualities that we want to have. Yeah, exactly. I I, I love that um, uh, description. What? So as we think about leading your team, I'd be kind of curious, maybe some concrete examples or maybe some advice for leaders to really help take care of the people around them. Like, yep. how can they encourage positive positive mental health? I, I hear leaders ask these questions. Uh, what are, what kind of advice do you have? Yeah, so I think 
A few key logistics is one, you have to look at your organization, your department and say, are we expecting what is reasonable of our employees, right? So one of the things in this department we I'm continuously having conversations about is that while we extremely value what we do here at work, I also really value what all of those who work here do outside of it, right? Like that's a huge part of their life. And we're very careful. Like if I feel like someone is being asked to do something more that extends them outside, you know, this domain in a way that's not healthy for for their life and their goals, then I'm constantly having communication to say, hey, you know, it feels like you're being overextended or maybe it sounds like you're having concerns that this is kind of coming into your family life or other areas. So one of the key, I think, things I would recommend is, to be honest, you have to constantly be communicating. And that's, that is a big thing that sometimes, I mean, I know that people may find as a strength or not a strength, but there's really no way from a constant communication with those in your organization or department to say, I want to check in on you. I value you again. And that that goes back to the idea that I, I have found it's amazing when people come to know that you really value them as a person first, not as a worker first. Their response to you is so much better, right? When they sense that there's a true value of that human being, um, not just what I can do for you at work, then then there's a there much better relationship. So that would be one thing. I think the other thing is we really try to engage feedback from everyone in the department continuously. Um, I don't mean like every single day I'm soliciting that, but but no matter what the role is, we really, really appreciate the unique perspectives that people bring. And so I think that in groups or departments where people are valued in that way and they recognize like, hey, like doesn't matter what role, people are not only want my feedback, but really are open and value that, then they feel much more part of a team and much more willing to kind of give of themselves there. And so um, whether it's our regular meetings or whether it's just kind of like different ways we solicit feedback in different ways throughout the year, that's a kind of a constant thing that we do there. The other thing too, is we have to celebrate the, the, what's going on in people's lives. You know, I, I think that's something that may, maybe that's taken for granted, but whether it's a recent birth or whether it's, we, you know, we, we enjoy kind of celebrating birthdays around here and others do a great job of even bringing in food and things like that. But when people feel celebrated about not just what's going on at work, but just their lives in general and recognize, then again, I think that they feel much more engaged in that whole process. So those are a few of them we can talk about more, but I, I think that sense of constant communication, a sense of valuing the person above the worker, mm-hmm. a sense of kind of like, um, you know, being excited and really promoting and celebrating positive things that are going on that are even outside of work are some of the few keys that I would talk about. Great. I like the the first point I wanted to make was when you talked about constant communication, I think it's easy for us as leaders to feel like we're communicating constantly because we, for example, if we're in an in-person office environment, we see people regularly, we ask for updates on different things, maybe we're work virtual, we have some regular virtual meetings or emails, and there's there's a lot of communication going. But I think the distinction we need to make is is scheduling time to really talk and to really communicate and get to the heart of their experience to provide feedback, both constructive and positive feedback. And a lot of times we can, in a work environment, we can go months at a time and not talk about anything of substance. Like maybe we talk about 
deadlines and schedules and work that needs to get done, but we don't find that time to uh, both receive feedback, but ask for, you know, give feedback. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point because what we often think is communication may not be, (laughs) I don't know if it was George Bernard Shaw, he said that the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it actually occurred in the first place, something like that, right? (laughs) And it's this idea that talking doesn't mean communicating, right, necessarily. And so, but what communication really is, is an open avenue, a real two-way street that gets at the heart of matters, right? And I think that to your point, you know, I've been really blessed with our, our CEO here is great at this, you know, and constantly engaging about what's going on. And I've had some other great leaders and other situations that I have, have taught me a lot. But even if that even if that time is just 10 minutes to say, hey, I kind of noticed something and I wanted to check in with you about it, I have found so many times that people, even when they were frustrated about something that happened, to simply sit down for 10, 15 minutes and kind of like allow that to, okay, I need to process this, right? And I don't necessarily even need you to tell me like what I should do or shouldn't do, but I need to kind of process it with you so that I know you heard that. Because I would argue that the more that, let's say if you're in a leadership role, the more that those that, you know, are part of your team are experiencing things and they they feel like they're experiencing them in isolation and they're not recognized for how challenging it might be, the more disconnected you become from those people, right? So I don't, I don't necessarily have to come up with great solutions of how to handle something, although sometimes that is an action item that we have to take forth. But I have to make sure that if something happened that is important to one of you know, those people in our department, that I am at least, I recognize that it happened and I'm at least there to validate and kind of process at some level, right? right. And, I, and I know that takes time. I mean, you, like anything, you can, you can overdo that um, too, but like just the ability to meet people where they are in their experiences because sometimes even the most emotional matter on Monday, if met appropriately and addressed, by Thursday isn't really as emotional as you thought it would be, right? But if Monday's emotion was never addressed and never like approached, then oftentimes Monday's emotion by Friday has given rise to a real big storm, right? Mm-hmm. And so what might seem like, oh, do I, you know, 10 or 15 minutes right now, I'm busy with everything else, it might seem inconvenient. I would argue that as a good leader, you recognize when that 15 minutes now is important and not only important to help that person flourish, but actually is a much better use of your time than hours later dealing with a storm, right? And that's sure. that's a big it's a big piece. There. Sure. You mentioned these conversations being an opportunity sometimes to process certain certain situations with people. And that's really applicable to the leadership approach that I take in terms of it really being more of a coaching process rather than right. a command and control, directly tell people what to do mentality. And so I, I imagine that there's some similarity to the process that a therapist might use in some ways where it's, it's um, helping people try to figure out the best next steps. Yeah. Helping people try to figure out and make a decision and own a decision and move forward to action. There is. You know, I think the first level that's very similar is what we call the goo factors. And one relates to what we've talked about, but goo is G-U-E. In the world of psychology, the goo factors are well known as kind of like the necessary components to have a positive relationship. And they are G being genuineness, 
you being unconditional positive regard. Um, and so by genuineness, I'm, I'm authentic, right? Like I, I, I trust you more as a leader in any role. If I believe that what you're giving me is real and authentic, even if I disagree with it, then what I think is you're giving me is kind of like a facade, right? Fake. The you unconditional positive regard is I might not like what you're doing. I may not even like get along with you, you know, but I, I value you as a human being, right? And I value you and, and who you are. And then E being empathy, right? So at the base level, yeah, all, I mean, even from a therapy or leadership standpoint, all really good situations involve the goo factor, right? But the second piece of it is, I think, again, it goes back to that communication. And this is the overlap too. There's a big difference between what's effective communication and not effective communication, right? So my ability, like, for example, is if if a specific issue occurred and I was emotional about it, I have a right to feel whatever way I feel, right? But if I embellish and I exaggerate my communication and it's really kind of a, it's taking it outside of what's truly going on, then it's more focused on just that emotional like appraisal. But I'm not communicating about truly what happened and how it affected you know each other and everything else like that. Um, th- I have to. That's the place I have to be, right? I have to be in the goo factor world, right? Genuineness, unconditional positive regard, and empathetic. And I have to find ways to communicate that are effective. And even if it's not forward moving, it might just be processing exactly what occurred, right? So yeah, there is a definitely a lot of overlay. I mean, there's some differences for sure, but I think some of those common dimensions we take across. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned the that unconditional regard that made me think about I was leading a workshop on providing effective feedback for leaders uh, recently. And one of the takeaways from the group was on how when we describe and when we provide feedback, we want to describe the behavior, not the person. Right. And so that was like, like for example, instead of telling somebody they're rude, we tell them this behavior during the meeting happened and why it's an issue, you know, if, if they interrupted somebody multiple times or right. something like that. And, and for that, this group I was working with, that was kind of an, that was mm-hmm. kind of an aha moment because they said, oh, I think I've been describing the person and it, it destroys the relationship. Um, and, and doesn't probably it most likely does not bring about the the desired results of changing the behavior. You're exactly right. Like right, when the moment a person feels as if they've been labeled as something, <laughs> is the moment they're probably rising up inside of themselves saying, "But not listen, you don't understand, right?" Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't understand. Like you know, that's the challenge when you label a person is you don't know all. The, you have no idea of all the context that has led to that person being there, right? But when you take an observable situation and you say, hey, the, here's kind of here's what happened. Here are the kind of you know situations that occurred. Whether or not we agree about that may or may not be the case, but we can at least kind of see, oh, okay, I understand why that might have been an issue, right? I understand why that might not have worked out as well. And so I think that's great. I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, part of good leadership is the ability to describe things as they are not necessarily how we want them to be or necessarily how we feel them to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you can find yourself getting to a place where both people agree uh, or, you know, a group agrees, like this is kind of what occurred and that wasn't the best situation, then it opens itself up. So there's so many more options for improvement 
Whereas if you describe, you know, the person, how you think they are, it's more likely just to create defensiveness and people don't like that. So Right, right. Yeah. I think a lot of times we describe intent yes. or we, we talk, I, I know you did this because, right. and that is not an effective pro- approach to, to feedback. So a lot of a lot of parallels there. There is. Yeah. I and mean, think about it. If you try to label something that you don't know for sure, you might be right, but you're also probably going to get yourself in dangerous territory in some ways, right? Like I can surmise about things and there's ways to, to be open to that. But when I start telling you what your intent was and you're the one doing it, I'm getting, it's a little dangerous. Whereas if I say observably, here's what seemed to occurred and I'm kind of curious uh, what you think about it. Well, there, there it was, right? It's more out in the open, so right. much easier to approach. Mm-hmm. What would you say you're most proud of as a leader? That's a great question. I would say what I'm most proud of is it's seeing where other people um, go from the point of leadership itself, right? So I, I, I would almost rephrase to say that where I find myself most proud is actually more what I find myself most grateful for is the opportunity to be able to interact with people in a very meaningful way and to really help share a common mission and a common goal and then see that mission, you know, whether it's what we're doing here or something else, see that mission grow and, but also see people grow. I think that's the thing that I, I have through all the struggles of leadership and the things that have been humbling for me, you know, it's great. Like, you know, for example, our, our interns um, who are now in positions across the, you know, the state and in the country, it's really, really neat to see them in those positions because you recognize that in, you know, kind of giving of yourself and of sharing in that relationship, that it really brought to fruition. It was in essence kind of bringing out, again, that sense of flourishing in a way that now others benefit and that we kind of as a collective body are giving back to a world that certainly needs us there. So it's really the, the people I'm most proud of than anything that I've done as a, a leader myself. Right. We're, we're limited in terms of the work that we can do as individuals. And I think it's really gratifying to see the influence we can have as a leader to to see not only am I doing this work and it's having a positive impact, but now because of the leadership I've provided, I'm seeing other other uh, impact and and right. just a just it just magnifies the impact that we can create as individuals. Yep, I mean the number one thing we can do as leaders is again back to our initial theme is. If we help other people flourish and pursue kind of where they're called to be, that's where our impact, I think, is the greatest, right? Mm-hmm. I've always been amazed that over the course of history, some of the best movements that have ever occurred is that these great leaders like inspired, I mean, countless people to take upon themselves something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And then their leadership really lives through those people, right? They, in many ways, like those people are the legacy by which I think leaders leave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for all the great things they've done, it's you can't even quantify, um, you know, the legacy of others and and what that kind of does for our world. There, yeah. So. I had a teacher who talked about how one of the things like he saw as his role as a leader is to develop people, and he was he was my high school band director, hmm. uh, Doug Johnson. But he talked about like part of his job was to make musicians better than he ever was and to make teachers better than he ever was. And like that's 
how you advance society. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I think that I hope my kids, whether being a leader at home or, or those who you know have been around me and stuff, right, supersede anything that I've ever done. And that's a, that's a great, great vision, I think, for all of us to have. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a, a really great way we can think about the, the influence and the legacy that we want to create. Much agreed. What would you say you're excited about, uh, either in the community or at work or family, as you look uh, yeah, look in the future? I, I think that I'm, I'm most excited that increasingly, and this, is a, this has been a great interview I've really enjoyed, because I think that increasingly people are, this may sound cl- cliche, but I mean it very sincerely, people are more and more engaged, I think, than ever on getting the heart of the things that matter most. You know, So what I mean by that is that Think of our everyday lives. Think of the things that we do that sometimes might seem mundane, but like are really, really important, right? You know, the things that kind of make us who we are and the people that we're, we're called to be. I'm seeing more and more in this area, not just in the world of mental health, but like weather, nutrition, lots of other areas that people are being more excited about, hey, you know what? I just haven't thought about this for I haven't thought about the fact that I've been sleeping, you know, I'll sleep 25 years of my life and maybe that might be kind of important, you know? And so it's neat that we are recognizing that things that we just might not have thought of might turn out to be the most important thing of all, right? There's this great quote, and I think is um, Ehi Dugan. I'm not sure if I said that name right, but he said that in the mundane, nothing is sacred, but in sacredness, nothing is mundane. And I love that idea because I think when you step back and you look, you know, within the neurons, you look within the, the atoms that make us all up, nothing is really mundane, right? Every, the fact that you and I can sit here and have a conversation like this is extraordinary that our brains and everything else are given in that way that we can, right? So I think that what most excites me um, is the things that are not controversial at all. They're just things that we all live and love and learn and we're kind of going about, but we're finally kind of recognizing maybe we should pay more attention to them. And in paying attention to them, the curiosity, you know, that's the other piece I should have mentioned about leadership today is that a curious leader is probably a good leader. And I mean curious in a good way. Someone who wants to understand the ins and outs and what allows things to work and doesn't work and pursues their role with curiosity and vigor is probably a good leader because they aren't just settled on that they have the right answers and that things are already known, but they're constantly seeking out new, innovative, interesting things in the world. And so yeah. um, I think that's, that's without sounding too vague, that's probably one of the areas I'm most excited about. So. I like that curiosity piece because I think that's a key part of also developing good relationships because we're if we're genuinely curious about the people around us, we're going to ask questions and we're going to want to learn more about them and what makes them tick and what's important. So I think that's a key part of leadership. Yeah, 100%. If you feel, if you meet someone and you sit down with them for the first time, and I'll have to tell you this great story um, as we are getting closer to being done, but if you meet someone who's genuinely curious about your life, right? And they want to just know. They, 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 they value what you've done and maybe what you have to give and all this. It makes for a great conversation, right? Because um, you instantly feel as if, wow, like there's a shared relationship going on here, right? Years ago, here's the story I was referring to. I, um, my wife was teaching with a woman by the name of Gina Malone. She was teaching uh, music over in St. Louis. And 
Um, we decided one night we were going to Gina married to Rodney Malone and we were going to get together for the first time as couples and just, you know, have dinner and stuff. And so we, we, we started dinner that night and Rodney is a good friend of mine today. And I literally mean in the first 15 minutes, Rodney turns to me and he says, <laughs> and you got to know Rodney, he says, have you ever thought about, could you be a good friend with yourself? I mean, I've never met this guy before. And he's asking me, <laughs> could you basically, do you think you're kind of a, you know, a good friendly person the way that other people want to be around you? And I thought, I said, Rodney, I don't think I've ever thought about that question before, but it spurred what has been a really creative, fun, curious relationship. And what I, what I sensed from Rodney from the beginning was that his curiosity was very genuine, right? He wasn't trying to analyze. He wasn't trying to break me down because he immediately said, to, about himself, he's like, I'm not sure if I could be. And I sometimes struggle with that. And I thought right off the bat, when we established that sense of unconditional positive regard, empathy, right? Genuineness and then curiosity. Wow, like this could go anywhere. And I think I really like this possibility, right? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Jim, for a great interview today. How can people find out more about you and the work you do at Easter Seals? Yeah, me personally, in one way that my website, James-Schrader, S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R.com. I've got most of my articles that I publish at different sites archived there. I've got five books that are linked, or you can go on Amazon and find my author page there. So that's probably a good one. Um, I really encourage people to check out uh, the podcast, Living a Whole Christian Life. We did 52 episodes for the 52 weeks of the year, and it's linked on my website and other major podcast outlets. And the idea of bringing together a whole life. Here at Easter Seals, please check out you know, our website, the psychology department website, and then our internship website. And like I mentioned, we are right now just beginning that public phase of our campaign. And so, you know, if you believe that, you know, not just mental health, but our holistic health is an important aspect of our community, we ask for any support that you might give and, and certainly can come visit us here if you'd like. Well, thank you, Jim, for your time today. Easter Seals is a great organization, and I hope everyone will will check out those sites and uh, learn more about Jim, learn more about Easter Seals. And uh, thanks for your time. I think this is really valuable for our listeners. So have a great day. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. To learn more about Dr. Tad Dickel and the T.A. Dickel Group, please visit T.A. Dickel.com. Thank you for joining us.